Thanks, John. Can you hear me okay with the mic? Okay, good. Apparently I've got a small head and, and then with glasses and this is all just a bit much. Um, so today um, we're going to be finishing our series on the Ten Commandments, um, which is basically a list of commandments that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. Um, we've been talking about it as a, as a list of the best ten ways to live. Um, so we started the series off ten weeks ago with number one, have no other gods before me. And we actually learned that, that first commandment helps us to keep all the others. So if you follow that one, the others will fall in, especially the first four commandments. Um, and they're all about your devotional life, like keeping the Sabbath holy um, and not making idols. So today, on this last commandment, um, it's more concerned with our thought life, and it's like the bookend at the other end of the ten. So if that first commandment helps us keep the first four, today's commandment is more about numbers five to ten. Um, so we're going to be having a look at it, and um, it's perhaps one of the most subtle commandments out of the ten, um, but it's actually one which can be deadly. So we're going to read from Exodus 20, verse 17. And it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, covet is not necessarily a word we'd use or understand today, um, let alone coveting an ox or a donkey. But I wonder if you can relate to any of the following. Browsing the Rightmove website for houses that you'll never live in. Looking at holiday villas, which are far too expensive. Swooning over Instagram of that perfect life. Perhaps feeling that you deserve more success, more happiness, or more love. What about putting a friend down or criticizing someone because you're actually a little bit jealous of them? What about wishing that your spouse or your children were more like somebody else's? Resentment about your job, your house, your body, just the way your life has turned out? Because what would you give to just get that promotion? to have that house or that image. You see, we may not use the word covet in our everyday language, but it's there in our discontentment and our resentment. And although no one can see it and we may try and hide it, it starts to leak out in our thoughts and our words and then our actions. And when we're little, it's really obvious, isn't it? You know, in a house with a two and a four-year-old, it's frustratingly obvious how much we covet. In our house, it's all to do with cars. So, you know, if your brother has got the best race car on the track, you don't just have secret thoughts that you deserve it and that you want it. You go ahead and you snatch it, usually knocking over the other person in the process. It's got so bad in our house that it's not just the cars, it's the parking spaces on the car mat as well. So, I've actually introduced parking permits in our house now. <laughs> and uh, Joel comes along with his car, and he gets his ticket, and the timer goes on for three minutes. And after three minutes, he has to drive away, otherwise he'll get a ticket, and Adam's car can come into the space. See, this concept of wanting what other people have is so well known to us. We have loads of sayings about it, don't we? Like, the grass is greener on the other side. Our yearnings will always exceed our earnings. Well, my favorite is, don't let your ice cream melt while you're counting somebody else's sprinkles. So whether it's cars or houses, jobs, lifestyles, we all want what other people have got. It drives the world of advertising and Instagramming. 
And it may not be oxes and donkeys, but the heart issue is the same. Now, not all desire is wrong. It's good to have a goal and to be driven. It's good to seek excellence. You know, our desires for joy and security and belonging and adventure, they're all good desires and they keep us moving forward, stop us becoming complacent. But what we need to be aware of is that from the moment we are born, these good desires are molded by the world around us. And soon we start to believe that these desires can only be met by material things around us. We stop trusting that God can provide those things for us and we take things into our own hands. God doesn't know what will make me happy. He doesn't know that if I had a boyfriend, then I would be happy. If I had that job, then I would be happy. If I had a more understanding wife, a bigger house, a better body, more charisma, more confidence, that's what would make me happy. And so we start to covet, having a wrong desire for something that is not ours to have. And the result is that we're never satisfied. So whether we call it coveting, which I find quite hard to say, which is unfortunate on a talk about coveting, or longings or desires, this is what the 10th commandment is all about. And this morning, we're going to think about where did all this come from? Why do we have that within us? And then we're going to look at how we can keep our hearts in good shape and learn to be content. What we're trying to do this morning is to avoid a spiritual cardiac arrest. Because as I said, this is the deadly commandment. So where did it all go wrong? Why do we want these things? Why do we always want a little bit more? We can blame advertising manipulating our desires, making us want different things. But actually, when Moses and the Israelites were given these commandments, advertising wasn't a big issue. And when in the Bible, a guy called David began to cover a woman bathing on a rooftop, he wasn't persuaded by advertising. And even Eve, right at the beginning of the Bible, and she desired to know as much as God knew. So she took a bite from that fruit in the Garden of Eden She wasn't influenced by adverts surrounding her at every turn. So we can't solely blame advertising and social media for what we want. I reckon if we took all that away, we'd still be coveting. Because God made us with desires. You know, God made us with the desire to feel significant. That's a good desire. And it's fulfilled in knowing that we are children who are loved by our Heavenly Father. But for many of us, our significance comes in other ways. Maybe it's in what we wear, in designer labels. Maybe it's in our jobs, because when work is going well, we feel significant. Our appraisals at work make us feel good, if they go well. When I handed my notice in a year ago, I said to my head teacher at the time that I was going to miss that feeling of success and significance. And she joked that she'd come around my house every term still and uh, give me an appraisal and assess my progress at home with the boys, just to make me feel good. And so in seeking to fulfill our needs, we not only look in the wrong place, but we're actually in danger of forgetting what it is we really need. Because our hearts were made to love God. That's that hole that we try and fill with a thousand things, but can only be satisfied by him. Instead, what we tend to do is choose to love ourselves. And nearly 500 years ago, Martin Luther described our hearts as curved in on themselves. And it's still true today. The person, whether we want to admit it or not, that we're most often concerned about is ourselves. In fact, you could say that the very root of covetousness is selfishness. 
And the Bible warns us about this, this selfishness and how the effects of our curved-in hearts not only impact our relationship with God, but with each other as well. And Jesus' brother wrote to a church experiencing this. And in James 4, verse 1, we read, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I wonder if you've ever been in a dispute or an argument and perhaps it really comes from wanting more recognition from that person or more money or a higher status or more possessions. And Jesus warns us against this by challenging his, his readers and his hearers to consider that our lives consist of far more than the things that we possess. He told this story in Luke about a man who worked and worked and worked to get all these, all these things, only to die suddenly and find himself standing before God giving an account of his life. And of course, all these things weren't there with him. See, we can spend hours collecting and wanting and searching for possessions to make us happy. We have this condition that where we continue to desire and covet more, just a little bit more will make me happy. And actually, it doesn't make a difference because Jesus says one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. None of our stuff is coming with us when we die anyway. So what are we supposed to do? If we're made this way, if we're made to desire, do we just accept, it's how I'm made, it's how God made me? Or do we start looking after our hearts and keeping them healthy? Stop taking in the rubbish and start exercising our hearts in the way that it was intended? Because to have a healthy heart, if you went to the doctors, they'd most likely bring a bit of a reality check and make sure you know how serious it is to carry on in your current lifestyle. Just because you can't see the damage inside doesn't mean it's not there. And the Bible does something very similar. It doesn't hide away from the side effects of coveting. And it shows us this in the story of David and Bathsheba. See, our commandment today talks about coveting your neighbor's wife. And this is what got David in so much trouble. And you can read the story for yourself in, in 2 Samuel, but the gist of it is that uh, David was there on his rooftop and he saw a woman... He desired her, so he wanted her, so he called for her, and he slept with her, and she fell pregnant. And so he thought, ah, quick, let's get the husband back from war and try and cover this all up. The husband didn't come back to see his wife. So David's like, what am I going to do now? Plan B, we're going to have her husband killed at war so I can marry this woman for myself. So from a single act of coveting, from this breaking this one commandment, David then committed adultery, lied about it, finally committed murder. So on our health kick to having healthy hearts, we realize that we have a problem. We know that it's dangerous and harmful to our hearts. And so the antidote, if you like, is to cultivate contentment. And how do we do that? Well, there's three things we can do. We can ask God for a new heart. We can be thankful. And we can give stuff away. So firstly, to cultivate our contentment, we need to ask God for a new heart. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to go deep on this issue. He doesn't want us to just change our outward behavior and kick those bad habits, but he wants to go right into our hearts. 
He is longing for us to replace coveting with contentment. And we can try to do this on our own. Whenever there's a health problem, you go to Google, NHS websites and other self-help books. And I've tried really hard to cultivate contentment on my own. You know, I wake up some mornings, and especially if I'm off to a wedding or a party or a social event, my diary's not that full, but if I was to go to one of those things, and I wake up and I say to myself, I am content. I'm not going to compare myself to anybody else at this event. I'm not going to wish that I was more like them. I'm going to be fully sure that I am enough as I am. So off I go to this event. And before long, I'm chatting to somebody who's better dressed than I am, with nice hair and makeup, more confidence, very wise. They have banter. And so off I spiral into a pit of comparing and coveting what other people have. And I start filling up with a little bit of resentment. You know, with Mother's Day last weekend, I think mums know this all too well, don't they? If anyone knows about comparing and coveting, it's got to be the mums in the room. You, know, you can't walk into a children's group and start to look and compare the children in the room. There's always that one child that's dipping their carrot sticks into the hummus for their lunch. And yours has got the same Marmite sandwich they've had for the last three years. Not the same sandwich, but you know, the same lunch. <laughs> Or there's, you know, you'll be chatting to the newborn mums and, and they'll be the one whose child is sleeping through from six weeks and you're like, oh, it's lovely for you. And you're there not having slept a wink. Mums are very good at comparing. But our own willpower alone doesn't work in learning to be content. We can't become content by just changing our behaviour because we're not the heart surgeons. We need to let God shape our hearts. And the most amazing thing is that God really, really wants to do this. What we can't do through our own will, he does for us. In fact, God promises it. In Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God offers us this heart transplant to replace our old curved-in hearts for his own. So if we're longing for contentment, then we can ask God for this. Someone who found this to be true is a guy in the Bible called Paul. Now, Paul was on a mission to persecute Christians and destroy Christianity until he met with Jesus and his life was transformed. You could say that he received his heart transplant. And in one of his letters, he wrote to um, the Philippians and he was writing from prison and he writes about finding contentment in any circumstance. So in Philippians 4, we read... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He says content in any situation. It's not that Paul stopped wanting things, and he certainly didn't stop sinning because he'd met Jesus. In fact, previously he writes that he struggled with every act of covetousness. But he does write that he learned to be content. This is a guy who was imprisoned at least four times. He was shipwrecked three times, and he was bitten by a poisonous snake. But he learned to be content. And he can say this because he knows in here what Jesus said about things being worthless, 
but actually the work he's done investing in people and their eternities will last forever. And Paul knows that following rules or commandments can't save anyone. He's not got a vague feeling that the future will be positive, but he knows a certain hope, and he knows the glorious inheritance that's waiting for him. See, learning to be content is all about reordering our loves. Paul learned that the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. And so in learning that, he's learned to just replace his curved and selfish heart and his love for himself and instead put God first instead. The second thing we need to do on our our journey to uh, cultivating contentment uh, is to be thankful. And we see this again in the way Paul writes the gratitude in his letters, even from prison. And, and he's, he's so thankful, he's never asking to trade circumstances with anybody. Because where coveting makes us long for more, gratitude actually makes us thankful for everything that we already have. And when we stop thinking that we deserve more and we deserve everything, and we realize that everything is a gift from God, then we can find contentment and we kind of escape that pressure of coveting because we're not actually owners of any wealth that we have. No possessions are ours by right. We had friends who, uh, a few years ago, they really needed a new car, and um, they prayed for the money, the money came in, amazing. They brought a new car, it was all going really well, they were so thankful, and a few weeks later, somebody crashed into the car, and it was a write-off, the money was just all gone. Um, And they were furious, like you would be, because this had been a gift to them. They felt like, yes, we'd prayed, the money had come in, we'd found this amazing car. And they were cross for a long time, and they couldn't find peace about it until they came to realize that we don't deserve anything. The car was a gift to them for a short while, shorter than they would have liked, but for a short while. But the money belonged to God. The car belongs to God in the first place. We're not owed possession, and actually every good gift is from God. And we need to learn to be thankful for what we have. So we can ask God for a new heart, we can be thankful, and then we can give stuff away. See, when Jesus talks about giving, he refers to it as the antidote to materialism and coveting. And in Acts, Jesus said that it's better to give than to receive. We're trying to teach our boys this at the moment, so we've started a Christmas tradition and we, every Christmas we're going to take them to the pound shop with their five pounds, and they have to buy for the other three members in the family. So we tried it this year, and um, Ads, who's two, he went straight in, and he did kind of a supermarket sweep, and he headed straight for the washing-up sponges, and he just started filling his basket with all these washing-up sponges. Martin managed to persuade him onto other things as well. Now, Joel, who's four, he kind of got this a bit more, okay, we're in here to buy Christmas presents, So he went around the shop and was like, well, I want that for Christmas, and I want that for Christmas, and I want that. And we had to teach him and explain to him, no, this is about giving. You're going to give presents to other people. We put what he wanted in Adam's basket, so he still got it. Um, But, you know, they they chose Christmas presents for us, and and we helped them wrap them up, and they gave them to us at Christmas. And uh, we were very excited to receive our gifts. You know, my dustpan and brush was amazing. And uh, Martin, very good actor, when he got his roll of wrapping up paper wrapped up, um, he was very excited. Um, but you could see the boys were pleased when they gave us um, our presents, and we were like, wow, I've always wanted one of these, and Joel said, I saw your one was getting a bit old, mummy, so I got you a new dustpan and brush. Um, actually, they did get that little bit of joy. They started to understand, oh, this is fun to see mummy and daddy really excited about what we've brought them. So we're going to continue that tradition because we want them to learn what Jesus said about giving, and we need to continue to learn it as well. 
We need to train ourselves that the things that scream, you need me, well, generally, we just don't. And giving and not buying into that need for all these things is a really good way to keep covetousness in its place. And so, to finish, coveting alone might seem like the commandment we can most easily live with, but that's what makes it so dangerous. Society around us is slowly turning up the heat in this, feeding our desires to want more, to need to be more. You know, you only need to talk to the youth in our church, and please do talk to them, by the way, you've been at the buffet after day, go and have a chat with them, and, and it's so clear the pressures they are under to be more, that they're being told they're not enough as they are. And culture, you know, especially the culture they're in today, is doing this slowly and subtly. There's a story, and I don't know if it's true, because I've not tried it, but apparently if you drop a frog into a, a pan of boiling water, it will jump out immediately, it senses the danger. But if you drop it into a pan of cold water and you slowly, subtly turn up the heat, it stays there and it gets boiled alive. So the frog can't see the threat of the slow but deadly rise in temperature. And it's kind of like that for us in society. It's so subtle, this you need this, you want this, this will make you happy, this will fulfill you, this will satisfy you, that most of the time we can't even see it. And ultimately, what we're talking about through this whole series is that sin, disregarding these commandments, is like asking for a cardiac arrest. Because the payment for sin, just like covetousness we've been talking about, the payment for those is death. And the world will never provide a cure. See, sin isn't about violating a code or breaking a rule, and then God's going to tell us off for it. It's more like a parent telling a child not to run into a busy road. You know, if I saw one of my boys about to do something that would seriously hurt them, of course I wouldn't sit back and watch them do it. No parent would, because we love our children. You know, when, we, when we're in these situations and I have to talk to Joel, we have a chat, he says, don't like your serious voice, mummy. And sometimes God uses his serious voice in the Bible because he loves us and he wants the best for us. See, the problem with all sin is that we've forgotten our first love. We've replaced God with something else, and we, we often believe that lie that you won't get what you need from God. He can't be trusted. Whereas actually, God has provided us a way to access this life-changing heart transplant by sending Jesus. And do not covet, and all the Ten Commandments are really useful, and they're God's way of showing us how we can live well. But we can't earn our way to God by keeping these commandments or any other rules like attending church every Sunday or doing good deeds, it's because of Christ's sacrifice that the way to God is already open, not by keeping all of these commandments. I'm going to hand over to John, um, who's going to lead us into communion.